hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I have a terrific show for you. I have a short monologue today because I've really prioritized the time to go over the critical care of COVID-19 in the hospital. And it's a real honor to have on the program this week, Dr. Paul Merrick. Dr. Merrick is considered the father of critical care in the world. He did his training in South Africa. He's trained at the best institutions in the United States. And he, along with Dr. Pierre Corey, are the uh, basically the bedrock of the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, a leading treatment group in the United States. America is so proud of their work. They've done tremendous benefit to so many patients across the United States. So we're going to spend most of the time dedicated to critical care. We've had uh, a busy week. There's been a progressive repeal of vaccine mandates across the United States. The the uh, wall seems to be crumbling, and this all basically turned the corner when Judge Doughty in the Sixth uh, Circuit uh, Federal Court overturned the remaining Biden CMS mandates, and then governments uh, came through at the local and state level, either banning mandates or demanding that any institution that has a requirement for a vaccine has a fair exemption process. So this has really reduced the anxiety level in the United States. And uh, Americans can now, I think, you know, take a breather here as we move through COVID-19. We've had more data move in on vaccine safety and efficacy, and I did want to uh, review those with you. I did so on the Joe Rogan podcast. So I was on Joe Rogan. It came out this week. Uh, it had a near record number of early views. There was all kinds of discussion on this. It was largely the same talking points that I've had now for many months. I think it just went to a broader viewership. But on vaccine efficacy, we did review some papers and uh, these were graphics and I wanted to let you know about them. The first paper is by 1040 et al. And the title of the paper is The Association Between Messenger RNA Vaccination and COVID-19 Hospitalization and Disease Severity. Now, uh, the hospitalization data are always skewed because the CDC says if they're unvaccinated and they come anywhere near a hospital, they actually get routinely tested, but the vaccinated don't. So we really can't look at the hospitalization data because it's, it's really a product of differential testing. But what 1040 did have is patients who look like they for sure had COVID-19 and they were admitted to the hospital and they were followed through both vaccinated and unvaccinated. And they had a reasonable sample size. They had strict definitions for fully vaccinated versus not. And the points I wanna make is in terms of progression to death or mechanical ventilation, um, a, another a composite of hypoxemic within 24 hours of admission, progression to death, uh, when we look at these composites, there was overall a 50, uh, I'm sorry, a 59% overall risk reduction. That means an adjusted odds ratio of 0.41, and this was statistically significant. However, when we look at death, people have said, listen, I really just care, uh, does the vaccine truly prevent people from dying? 
the data in the 1040 paper published in JAMA, uh, and this is with this is it spans from March of 2021 to August of 2021. 45% of their cases had Delta, so it was a reasonable representation of Delta infections. Death occurred in nine of 142 patients uh, who were fully vaccinated, and that that um, percentage was 6.3% compared to 91 of 1055 individuals who were unvaccinated, and that proportion was 8.6%. So it was relatively unimpressive in terms of mortality reduction, and that p-value was 0.36, so it was not statistically significant. The other paper I reviewed with podcaster Joe Rogan, who I thought scientifically was uh, quite adept, is very intelligent, very engaged, uh, is the paper by Barbara Cohn and colleagues that was published in Science uh, in the last few months. The date of issue was October 11th. And uh, there, this is from the Veterans Administration Hospital and uh, system, and this was 780,000 veterans, 780,225 veterans who um, basically came into hospital, had COVID-19 testing. We don't know if they were hospitalized for COVID. So again, there's this differential testing bias, but we do have the overall crude mortality rates in a survival curve. And here are the findings. With Cohn and colleagues, uh, there was a difference, about a two percentage point difference between uh, non-COVID uh, deaths among those vaccinated and unvaccinated. Actually, the vaccinated had a survival advantage even if the cause of death wasn't COVID or the death wasn't uh, you know, tested positive for COVID. So that indicates selection bias, meaning healthier people are more likely to take the vaccine compared to unhealthier people closer to death. That's important. But among those who tested COVID positive, those survival curves separated uh, to a greater extent, 12% absolute risk reduction for the vaccinated compared to unvaccinated. And that was about four months after vaccination. That's over age 65. But let's look at the age under 65 group. There, the overall benefit of vaccination was about 1%, 1% absolute risk reduction. And that's what I showed Joe Rogan and his comments is, well, you know, that wasn't very much. And then finally, in the Cone paper, they have the protection rates of the vaccine efficacy against the binary outcome of just being PCR positive uh, separated according to um, the three different vaccines. They all start out a nearly 90% protection in March of 2021. And then uh, Moderna, which was the best, uh, declined from 90% to 60% protection. Pfizer declined from 88% to about 44% protection. And then Johnson & Johnson fell from about 86% protection down to about 15% protection or vaccine efficacy. That's one minus their hazard ratio. And that's in one of the figures of the Cone paper. So these findings suggest that uh, something happened in September. And my hypothesis is, is that most people took the vaccines in the Veterans Administration early in 2021. So they hit the six-month anniversary date of taking the vaccine. And also, we had a full shading in of the Delta outbreak by September. It was 99% Delta. And we had a wealth of data suggesting the vaccines simply don't cover the Delta variant very well. And so for those reasons, we ended up with a situation that uh, the vaccines were running out of coverage and those protection rates went down. 
Having said that, there is some modest benefit for mortality greater among those over age 65. So that's a fair view of the data, and that was revealed to America on the Joe Rogan Experience released this week uh, on Spotify, and many uh, uh, provided commentary on that. Back this week is a brief music segment. So many people have messaged me that they want to hear music on the McCullough Report. Uh, this came in from a close friend, Tanya de Jong from Australia, and this is uh, Reverend Michael Junkus, and the title of this piece is Shelter Me. This is a prayer song in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen. That's Oh Shelter Me by uh, Reverend Michael Junkus and actually four different artists done through uh, a WebEx beautiful piece. Uh, you can find that on the YouTube link that I'll provide for you. But uh, let's go ahead and get on with the rest of the show. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel-packed vitamins. Uh, Looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement the only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product from Healthy Cell. I use them every day. I believe in them. And you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. There was a time when Americans could rely on the fourth estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcast, video, and 24-7 talk radio. 
America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to invite to the show for the first time, Dr. Paul Merrick. Dr. Merrick is considered uh, one of the world's authorities on critical care, which is a broad field dealing with patients who are very sick from internal medicine problems. And he's been very involved from the very beginning with COVID-19 since COVID-19 patients ended up being hospitalized early in the pandemic and critical care doctors effectively were the front line for those patients. And I'm going to ask Dr. Merrick to introduce himself and outline his training course since he originated from South Africa, and and he can better do that than anyone uh, in the world. So, Dr. Merrick, welcome to the McCullough Report. Uh, Thank you, Peter, and thanks for having me on. So, yes, I went to medical school in South Africa. So, after school, you go to medical school. It's a six-year course, and then after that, you do a rotating internship which is what I did. I then did a four-year residency in internal medicine, again in South Africa. This was in Johannesburg and Baraguanath Hospital. I then became an attending and ICU apprentice for about 18 months, again in Baraguanath Hospital in Soweto, South Africa. At that time, I had the opportunity to do further education. I did a BSc Honours in Pharmacology, and I did a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene, um, being you know obviously in Africa. I then act, went went to Canada. Uh, I went to Bill Sybil's ICU and did a critical care fellowship in uh, London, Ontario. Since then, I actually came to the U.S. The job opportunities were much better in the U.S. So. I've been in academic medicine for the last, I don't know, it seems like a long time, you know, at least 30 years, the different medical schools. Um, and um, that's, that's you know, my academic background. Uh, my interests in critical care are pretty diverse. Uh, I suppose my focus uh, is really sepsis, hemodynamics, um, but also nutrition and endocrine. Now, so... But- what was going through your mind as uh, the first news hit that uh, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19, the syndrome, were basically, you know, patients were landing in the United States? Yeah, so that's interesting. So as you remember, this was March, end of March of 2020. And, you know, obviously we were aware of it and we were, be- we were aware of what was happening in New York. Uh, so patients were being admitted in New York, being admitted to the ICU, being put on ventilators with a mortality of 90%. And if you remember at that time, the um, WHO, the NIH, the CDC basically said the treatment was supportive, supportive, which is really no treatment. And to me, as an intensivist, that seemed completely outrageous that you would have people who are dying of this disease and there was no specific treatment. So really, it was at that time that really it was the 24th of March, 2020, that I put together my first protocol for the treatment of SARS-CoV-2, which then evolved into the FLCC protocol, which was the MATH Plus protocol for the treatment of hospitalized patients. 
And it has obviously evolved with time and it's based on science. So, you know, we follow the science and we're guided by the science. And so our protocol has evolved. So that's really the math plus protocol. What we did also recognize as we were going through this is obviously you and others have so wisely figured out is that once they come to hospital, we've missed the boat. We really need to treat them early because that's the key to preventing the spread of this disease and preventing them coming to hospital. So we did then develop protocols for early treatment, much like you have. And I still think that's where um, we need to put a big emphasis. But clearly there are people who fall through the cracks and come to hospital. And I think clinicians need to know how to treat these people. Now, Dr. Merrick, have you been on uh, NIH study sections in the past? No, no. And have you um, worked in other collaboratives in critical care for big clinical trials? So, you know, during the era of sepsis research, I mean, I think you kind of remember we went through all of these monoclonal antibodies and all kinds of studies for sepsis. So, you know, I did, I was a PI site investigator for many of these unfortunately failed studies, you know, the TNF study, the IL study, the uh, protein C study. I, you know, so I've been through all of these multi-center studies. But you must have been on many uh, committee meetings and uh, whether it be through the Critical Care Society, the Chess Foundation, the pulmonary societies, where um, there certainly were a lot of group discussions regarding, you know, optimal management in critical care, right? So, you know, critical care is an interesting beast because to do research in ICU patients is remarkably difficult, you know, so because these people are critically ill, they, um, you don't have time to get, or really good time to get informed consent. And so time becomes an issue. So to do you know, real world research in critical care has always been an enormous challenge. And, you know, we see this with the vitamin C studies because, you know, when we did this, um, just as part of standard of care, patients were treated within six hours. If you look at all the randomized controlled trials, or most of them, you know, the time to enrollment is 18 or 24 hours. And can you imagine waiting 24 hours to give a septic patient an antibiotic? So it is very, it's very challenging. And unfortunately, unlike cardiology, critical care does not have a track record to be proud of. There are not many studies that have turned positive. We have hundreds of negative trials. And, you know, you can count on the fingers of your amputated arm how many positive critical care studies there are. Critical care has advanced enormously. But I think it's because of a greater understanding of physiology and pathophysiology and the, the understanding that these are syndromes that cannot, that are very heterogeneous in, in, in in nature, you know, a 20-year-old with urosepsis is different to, a, you know, an 80-year-old with pneumonia. So lumping these all patients together is very different from, you know, people with an MI who have a much more homogeneous presentation. 
So going back to your question, yes, you know, when 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 this damn pandemic started, you know, I was at a loss. So that's why I reached out to colleagues across the country and we were talking about things to do. You know, one of the, the smartest people that I reached out to was Umberto Maduri. You know, he's, he's the world expert on corticosteroids. And we had many discussions. And really, it was through that collaboration that we were recommending corticosteroids in the beginning of April at a time when the NIH, the CDC, and everybody else said, don't use steroids. So really, I think, you know, we've advanced through collaboration with colleagues across the country. And it still co continues to this day, you know, that it's a collective wisdom. You know, I can talk about vitamin D. So, you know, last two days, I was in communication with a professor of endocrinology in New Jersey, who's been helping me understand vitamin D treatment. So it's through this collective wisdom that we've made progress. And so that's part of the good part of, of this pandemic. But, 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 but Dr. Merrick, what, so, so uh, you pretty quickly got on the map. You're, you're considered already the father of critical care coming into uh, COVID-19. And you got on the map early and people saw your work and it was widely known um, the uh, the protocols, the FL, the, you're basically the formation of the FLCC, which was uh, itself really a, an incredible organizational feat in the middle of a crisis. But, you know, the thing I was looking for in, as a cardiologist is, you know, the leadership from Harvard and Duke and Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic and UCLA and Emory, you know, we have so many uh, blue ribbon academic institutions. I I would have expected the academic bravado of having the Harvard protocol testing a certain strategy and the, the Mayo Clinic protocol. Uh, you know, we see these uh, across all our cardiovascular syndromes. We see it across cancer, so many illnesses. What happened here? What happened to the other centers and their innovation with individual protocols? Yeah, so you, you, that's a very astute observation because there was a massive void you know, a massive void, you know, even if you look at the Society of Critical Care Medicine, which is meant to represent intensivists from around the world and all these, you know, high-level academic institutions, their first protocol, which I strongly objected to, was supportive care. And when we even dared raise the issue of corticosteroids, we were scolded. So, I don't know why there has been such a monumental failure of academia and the leading institutions to actually, you know, take a lead. Um, you know, we filled this void because there was nothing else. It was interesting. You know, there never was any, it didn't seem like there was any competition. You'd think that, uh, you know, the, in there's academic medicine is so competitive that you'd think immediately, you know, we'd have the Ann Arbor protocol on, uh, on some type of combination approach, or immediately someone would try like an early intubation versus late intubation approach, or another group would try uh, some type of combination. We knew this was a potentially fatal syndrome. Uh, and in fact, people sick enough to the, go into the ICU. Uh, it had high mortality rates that we would pull out all the stops, right? I mean, you look at uh, what's been done in, in sepsis, uh, what's been done in other types of 
fatal syndromes. I can tell you in cardiology, we have tried everything and it's been no holes barred in terms of trying to save lives. And from the very beginning, it seemed like our critical care colleagues were gun shy. Yeah, so I have a theory or theories why this has happened. I think the focus was not on early treatment and pharmacological treatment of available drugs in, in, in that were available. I think there were some, you know, some more sinister forces that were at play, which actually go to, went against this idea of binding effective treatments in lieu of, you know, other treatments that are expensive and designer molecules and this notion of doing randomized controlled trials and giving patients placebo in the setting of a pandemic. And the, the thing which I, you know, really insist on talking about is there's no single magic bullet. It's a combination of therapies to treat this complex disease. And as such, it's very difficult to do real-world randomized trials when you have you know, six or seven potential interventions, which you can't dissect out. And to give a patient double placebo is just unethical. So, you know, it's been a monumental failure because I, I think there's been a obsessive focus on RCTs rather than looking at real world observational data. And I think, you know, you know and we know that studies have demonstrated the value of observational studies. I mean, you know, we're looking at good quality studies. You know, it does not have to be this randomized controlled trial, which has very selective inclusion and exclusion criteria and don't, does not reflect real world practice one little bit. Dr. Merrick, I, I asked you at the beginning on this interview, if you could lay out for us uh, what an ideal state-of-the-art treatment approach would be right now if a patient came to you with COVID-19. So I'll give you the case. Uh, it's going so before, to be you, before you do, can I interrupt? You know, what you just said is just so important. It's such a fundamental concept. I've been doing this, as I said, for 35 years. I've never seen two patients that are the same. So you can't standardize treatment. You have to integrate all your knowledge and it has to be adapted to the patient in front of you because they all differ. And that's, you know, what makes this very challenging, but at the same time, very rewarding. You know, one needs an enormous database of information and you apply that, the best information to the patient in front of you. And it's so critical. It's the combination of science and the art of clinical medicine. It's so true. And I would say parenthetically, I think what's been difficult about COVID-19 is actually the issue of this absolute isolation. Well, why don't we go through this example where a 65-year-old patient uh, develops COVID-19, and let's say it's just the case where there is a relatively rapid onset of symptoms. So it starts out with nasal congestion, headache, fever, but let's say within three days, there's cough and there's a mild shortness of breath, but, but like in many cases, there's panic. You know, there's discussion with family members and it, there's just a decision, a family decision that the 65-year-old patient should go to the hospital because they have COVID-19 with progressive symptoms. And let's just say 
the decision by the ER staff is to admit them to the hospital and that they've had basically no pre-hospital treatment. Take it from there. Yes. So, you know, the first thing I think you need to do is assess the severity of illness because it's kind of obvious is that you need to see how sick the patient is because you need to tailor your treatment specifically to severity of illness. You know, it's similar if a patient is hypotensive. You, you, You have to titrate the therapy to the hypotension. Not every patient gets the same dose. So the first thing is to assess how sick the patient is because this idea that you give every single patient the same treatment and the same protocol is completely bizarre and absurd. So you need to assess the severity. And we do have a number of biomarkers which are really readily available, which I use every single day, which help me. So the things that are useful is some biomarkers, the serum ferritin, the, the CRP, is a very important, and DDAMA are very important biomarkers to assess the severity of illness. The, C, the, the chest x-ray, but particularly the CAT scan, is very important. The CAT scan gives you a wealth of information about how extensive the disease is and how responsive it is. So, you know, based on, you know, if this patient has high ferritin, has a high D-dimer, has high CRP, has a CAT scan with diffuse, what we call ground glass opacities. This patient has severe ongoing inflammation and we need to treat the patient with potent anti-inflammatory drugs. And in fact, we will titrate the dose of the drug according to the degree of inflammation. This is not rocket science. Now, can you just give our uh, listeners some uh, guidance on the O2 saturation. There's been such a focus on O2 saturation. So let's say uh, at home, the O2 saturations were uh, above 90%, uh, but in the ER, they had a few measurements at let's say 88%. So, 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 you know, what's important is the baseline O2 saturation and what happens with ambulation or walking. So if the patient walks, which is very important, and the SAT drops into the 80s, that's a very ominous sign. So we want to look at both the baseline SAT as well as what happens with ambulation. So, you know, if the patient SATs around 90, it would indicate, you know, they have some pulmonary disease, their biomarkers probably won't be too bad, and you can get away with using lower dose. But if their sets fall to the 80s and they have extensive disease, you're going to use a higher dose. So the oxygen saturation is critical. And for people who have COVID at home, they need to monitor the O2 set. And if your oxygen saturation falls less than 90, particularly with walking, that's a really bad sign. And you need to go to hospital because you need potent anti-inflammatory drugs. So in a case like that, what would be kind of the lead off uh, drug orders that you would put in? Yes. So, you know, the drug of choice, I think, for the pulmonary phase of COVID-19 is methylprednisolone. You know, for multiple reasons, you know, dexamethasone is what's used in many hospitals. It's an inferior drug. There's absolutely no question of doubt based on the pharmacology, the genetics, um, 
it, methylprednisolone is the drug of choice. So, you know, when patients come into hospital, you know, they have sets around 90, they, they, their biomarkers aren't too bad. We would start off on methylprednisolone 40 milligrams twice a day. However, if they have really severe disease, we would up that and give them much higher doses. So methylprednisolone is an anti-inflammatory drug. It's been used for, you know, interstitial lung disease, pulmonary inflammation for decades. So pulmonologists know about methylprednisolone. That's what they use to treat inflammatory lung disease. So I'm not sure why it's not the standard of care. So, Dr. Merrick, I have to ask you, in your experience as a critical care physician, have you ever seen a protocol or a disease where we use six milligrams of dexamethasone to treat anything? No, it's absurd. And that's, you know, it really upsets me because it's absurd. It's a tiny dose. It's a fixed dose. It's the wrong dose. So it's the wrong steroid in the wrong dose for the wrong duration. I want so, the listeners. I want the listeners to understand that dexamethasone is used. It's used for some um, acute kind of neurological inflammation syndromes and ear, nose, and throat syndromes. Uh, uh, but in doses like you know ten milligrams uh, four times a day or greater, I can tell you as a doctor, I've never seen dexamethasone six milligrams orally or parentally ever use. And I agree with Dr. Merrick, our go-to drug for acute asthma exacerbations and a whole variety of pulmonary inflammatory conditions has always been methylprednisolone or solumedrol. And yeah. this is a steroid medicine and it's also a balanced steroid medicine. One of the, my concerns about dexamethasone is it's primarily a glucocorticoid. It actually increases the blood sugar uh, to a greater degree, it has a shorter duration of action. And there now are a wealth of studies showing a high blood sugar in the setting of COVID-19 is a poor prognostic sign. So, you know, I must agree with you. There, there are very limited indications for dexamethasone. So it does cross the blood-brain barrier. So that's why we use dexamethasone in patients who have you know, brain metastases with cerebral edema, we use dexamethasone specifically, but that's, you know, that's one indication. The second is it crosses the placenta. So if you want to use a steroid to mature the, in, the you know, the fetus's lung, we use dexamethasone. Those are the only two indications to use dexamethasone. To use it for an inflammatory lung disease, I think is absurd. And to use it in these tiny homeopathic doses, fixed doses, I think is awful. It, it's, it's, it just doesn't make any sense. It almost seemed to me as if the, um, the group in the UK that tested this, it almost seemed like they had some that dose on the shelf and wanted to use it up. But let's move on. What other class of drugs for this patient, uh, what specific drugs would you use? Yeah, so, the, you know, the so one has to understand the disease to treat the disease. So the two biggest components with COVID lung disease is inflammation. The second is clotting. So it's very important to use an anticoagulant. And we recommend low molecular weight heparin because it's not only an anticoagulant, but it has a whole number of other beneficial effects. We know 
patients with COVID get both big clots and tiny clots. So it's not rocket science to use an anticoagulant. We were recommending low molecular weight heparin in April of last year. It took the, the scientific community almost a year until they actually did studies proving its benefit. Would you, would you recommend a full dose or just a prophylactic dose? No, it has to be, you have to fully anticoagulate these people. So it would be full dose. Now, obviously, you know, one has to be careful with renal function um, and you need to monitor the, hep, the, the low molecular weight heparin. But these people develop a profound clotting disorder. We know the spike protein specifically activates clotting. We know that specifically. So these people get a profound prothrombotic state forming clots. So it's not rocket science to figure out you need the methylprednisolone for the inflammation and you need the heparin for the clotting. Now, I noticed you didn't, uh, at this stage of the illness, feature the antivirals. Are there antivirals that play a role at this stage? Now, that's a brilliant question because I think we need to review that COVID goes through different phases. So during the incubation and early symptomatic phase, you have viral replication. By the time the patient reaches the hospital, almost all patients do not have active viral replication. The viruses are dead and not replicating. And although their PCR is positive, the PCR does not indicate active viral replication. So giving antiviral drugs to kill something that's already dead is kind of dumb. So we know they just don't work. If you look at remdesivir, it's a tragic story. Remdesivir in hospitalized patients actually increases your risk of dying, increases. There's a 4% increased risk of dying with remdesivir. It just doesn't work. The same thing with monoclonal antibodies or convalescent serum, the exact same concept. Once the patient comes to the hospital, the virus is dead. You can't kill something that's dead. And so we know convalescent serum and monoclonal antibodies actually, like remdesivir, increase your risk of dying. So antivirals have a role early on in the disease. Once they come to hospital, you know, the viruses stop replicating. It's all due to inflammation and clotting and metabolic problems. The data we have, there's, you know, there's no good data that, that um, remdesivir or anti antiviral specifically works. However, the exception would be, you know, ivermectin, nitazoxamide, hydroxychloroquine, which may have a role early. So, you know, particularly hydroxychloroquine may play a role early. Ivermectin is particularly interesting because it has both antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties. So although people don't want to talk about it and they talk about it as a horse dewormer, it actually is the perfect medication because it has antiviral and anti-inflammatory effects. And what's interesting is its antiviral effects really are mediated mainly through the host immune response. So that is unaffected by viral mutations because it's based on you know, host factors rather than viral factors. So that's why it's such an attractive drug for the use of, of SARS-CoV-2. So if you're not sure, 
It's a very good question you ask. So, you know, with this variant, you know, it's not clear if patients still have viral replication. That's why ivermectin is the perfect drug because it has both antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties. Well, listen, let's take a pause here. This is such a good conversation. What I'd like to do is continue on the other half of our recording today. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Are you looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator of nutritional supplements for cell health. Most vitamins haven't been upgraded since the 1930s. Healthy Cell uses a innovative technology, which is a gel pack that provides a better absorbed vitamins and nutrients where they're needed the most. I just took a Healthy Cell today before I went out and exercised, and I can tell you I am working hard for America Out Loud radio as we speak. And tonight, I am looking for good REM sleep. And I can tell you, I am tired, and I want to fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deeply and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell. Um, You're going to use the Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. This is the only sleep supplement designed to support all four stages of sleep. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, and get a 20% off for your first order of any product. I use Healthy Cell, and I'm really glad that I've been introduced to it. So I recommend it for you. Again, go to HealthyCell.com and use the OUTLOUD code, promotional code, for a 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. We're picking up on the second half of the show today with Dr. Paul Merrick. I can tell you, I really have him on a roll, and we are now deep into the inpatient treatment of COVID-19. Dr. Merrick, can you build out a little bit more information about ivermectin and the dose and the duration of ivermectin as we're treating a patient in the hospital? Yes. So, um, for a hospitalized patient, obviously, the, the, the dosing for prophylaxis and early treatment is somewhat different from the hospitalized patient. I mean, clearly, the patient's in hospital because he's critically ill. So for the hospitalized patient, we would recommend a dose of 0.4 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram per dose, and that's per day, taken for five days. And it's actually better taken with a meal 
because it's a highly lipophilic drug, means it's a lipid-liking drug. And if you take it with a fatty meal, you get much better absorption and much better blood levels. So it's 0.4 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram per day for five days. Uh, that's what we think is the optimal dose. Now, what other drugs? You mentioned vitamin C uh, and uh, the possibilities there. Are we talking about oral vitamin C or intravenous? So, you know, all of these drugs act synergistically together. They, 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 it's like a recipe. You know, when you're making a, a cake or whatever you're making, it's not one ingredient. It's a number of ingredients that work together. So ascorbic acid works together with methylprednisolone. They each enhance the efficacy of the other. It's a really interesting idea. So while with sepsis, ascorbic acid is the you know, main therapeutic thrust, with COVID, it's methylpred, methylprednisolone. But ascorbic acid acts synergistically together with methylpred. There is really good data that ascorbic acid, which is potently anti-inflammatory and antioxidant, improves the outcome. We know patients with COVID-19 have very low vitamin C levels. So what people may not know, it's really interesting, is vitamin C is really a stress hormone. So almost all species on this planet, except humans and guinea pigs, when they are stressed, they increase production of vitamin C because it is an important stress hormone. Because humans have a mutation in the gene, they can't make ascorbic acid. So it just makes sense that when a human being is stressed and whether that stress be surgery or whether that stress be an acute infarct or COVID-19, you cannot make vitamin C. Vitamin C is a really important antioxidant, anti-inflammatory. So it just makes sense to give vitamin C. We prefer to give it IV because that guarantees good levels, but its availability is somewhat of an issue. So, you know, if you can't give IV, we would, you know, oral vitamin C uh, is, is, is an adequate alternative. You know, a dose of a thousand milligrams every six hours, um, is highly effective. The other thing which I really, which I learned recently actually, is that your microbiome, which is your flora in your gut, change with COVID. What happens with COVID is you become depleted in the very good bacteria called bifidobacteria. What's interesting is if you give patients ascorbic acid, it increases bifidobacterium. So, you know, you're doing a number of things at the same time. So it's methylprednisolone, it's heparin, then it's ascorbic acid. And, and if you were to give it IV, what would be a typical dose and, and dose schedule? Yeah, so, you know, that is a little bit controversial um, because, you know, I would kind of titrate it according to severity of illness. Um, probably 1.5 to 3 grams every six hours. However, if the patients are critically ill, you know, these are patients with overwhelming inflammation, we've used doses as high as 25 grams. So that's a really big dose just to overcome the inflammatory response. So again, over how, how long is that given? 
Yeah, so, so the 1.5 or 3 grams is given as an infusion okay. over half an hour. The 25 grams is given over an infusion over an hour. Got so it. much like the methylprednisolone, where we titrate the dose according to severity of illness, it kind of makes sense to do the same with ascorbic acid. Um, although the heparin, though, is a fixed dose based on you know the patient's anticoagulant profile. Right. Now, what about vitamin D? Would you use that in the hospital? So that's an excellent question. I think the role of vitamin D primarily is in the prevention of COVID because it's a potent, it potently reduces your risk of getting COVID. And if you get COVID of dying from COVID. So if people are listening to this, please, I implore you, take your vitamin D. It's probably one of the most effective methods of preventing COVID. And if you're fortunate enough to be able to actually get your doctor to measure your vitamin D level, you want your vitamin D level above 50. It seems that if you get your vitamin level, vitamin D level above 50, your chances of getting COVID are reduced to almost zero. It sounds too astonishing, but that's what the data suggests. So I think the role of vitamin D is in the prevention of COVID. Now, obviously, it's, very, it's a very important uh, hormone on the immune system. The problem is it takes, if you take oral vitamin D, it takes days or weeks to actually activate to the active form. So we give it in patients who are hospitalized, and we can give them a big dose. But I think it's less effective in the acute setting than in the prophylaxis, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so what, what else would go in that order set for this patient? Um, any more nutraceuticals, zinc, uh, quercetin, uh, yeah. anything, famotidine, anything else in there? So I need to talk about melatonin. You know, you're going to think I'm being, being a, you know, a snake oil doctor. But melatonin has been proven in a number of randomized controlled trials, as well as observational studies, to profoundly reduce the risk of severity of disease and the risk of dying. And melatonin is a remarkably interesting molecule, having multiple modes of action. So, you know, what th there's no reason that every hospitalized patient or any patient with COVID should not be taking 10 milligrams of melatonin at night. It is truly a simple, cheap, ridiculously safe medication that is a potent antioxidant, a potent anti-inflammatory drug that has been shown in COVID to have really enormous potential benefits. That's remarkable. Um, how about uh, zinc, quercetin, and acetylcysteine? Yes. Yeah, so, you, you know, we're now going down the list. So, you know, we're going to, what I've mentioned were the most potent that have the biggest, the biggest impact for your back. So you want to give that is, which is most impactful. So, you know, again, methylprednisolone, heparin, ascorbic acid, ivermectin, melatonin. I think those are the most important. Then as we go down the list, you know, there are things, zinc has, you know, inhibits viral replication. It's important for the immune system. 
Well, it's important, you know, the studies haven't shown a dramatic effect, but you know what? It's so cheap, it's so safe that why not give it? What's really interesting though is anti-androgen therapy, specifically the use of spironolactone. So spironolactone, as you know, as a cardiologist, it's a very interesting drug. So not only is it anti-androgen, but it's anti-inflammatory and anti-fibrotic. And probably that's why it works in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. It seems to be very effective in COVID. So recently there was the SPADEX study, which was a combination of spirulactone and dexamethasone. Obviously they used the wrong steroid and the wrong dose, but adding spironolactone to dexamethasone had a dramatic effect on patient outcome. So, you know, spironolactone, as you know, is a very safe drug. It's cheap. So I would add it next to our multimodality treatment for the for the hospitalized patient with COVID. That's absolutely terrific. Now we just have a few minutes left. Um, uh, why don't you take it from here and round out other aspects of critical care that you think uh, you'd want you know, young doctors or even family members to know about? Uh, I think I saw some data, Dr. Merrick, that there's been 36 million hospitalizations in the United States over some time frame uh, that the CDC has reported in one uh, paper from the premier database. And you know, that's just going to be people with commercial insurance, but 36 million hospitalizations. What else should be in the critical care uh, realm of consideration? Yeah. So, you know, obviously you want to do whatever you can to treat patients early, as you know, so they don't get hospitalized. When they get hospitalized, I think you need to start the methylprednisone as they walk into the door. Obviously, they need oxygen. There's good data that high-flow nasal cannula are very effective in providing oxygen. So this should be your first-line therapy. You want to avoid intubation. I think we know this was a disaster in New York and across the country. Once you intubate the patient, particularly with Delta, your chances of recovering the patient are get remotely small. So you need to do whatever you can to prevent intubation. High-flow nasal cannula are very effective. The other is what we call cooperative proning or proning of the patient. Let the patient lie on the side, lie on their belly if they can. It's very good for pulmonary toilet and it actually improves oxygenation. So, you know, you wanna use high-flow nasal cannula and you can use, you know, whatever rate you need, you wanna start proning them, moving them about, and you want to avoid intubating if you can. Intubation is a, is a disaster for COVID patients. The, the mortality goes up significantly. How about the use of uh, BiPAP, for instance? So BiPAP is okay. The problem with BiPAP is, is anybody who's used BiPAP, is, it's not tolerated really well. You know, it's fine for you know, when you have pulmonary edema, you put it on the face and it resolves quickly and you take the mask off. Unfortunately, COVID pneumonia doesn't get better quickly. So putting this compressive mask on patients is not well tolerated. So you can use, you can alternate CPAP with high flow ca oxygen 
hyphlonasal cannula if patients are getting into trouble. The problem is if patients do not to tolerate it for a prolonged period of time. But it's a good question because you want to do whatever you can do to avoid intubation. So if patients are deteriorating, yes, you want to maybe alternate high-flow nasal cannula together with CPAP. So this has been a huge shift from early on where I remember it almost seemed like the intubations were defensive, that people were being intubated because of this thought that it may reduce the spread of the virus. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's like ECMO. ECMO doesn't treat COVID. Intubation does not treat COVID. It makes it worse. It makes the lung injury worse. So I think, you know, obviously there are some patients who you have to intubate. I mean, otherwise the patient's going to die of severe respiratory distress. But I think the clinician needs to do whatever he can to avoid intubation. I think those are terrific words. Well, Dr. Merrick, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. That was a real tour de force in critical care. If I've learned anything, uh, that if one's going to err on the side of treatment, err on the side of treating the patient, um, it takes a lot of drugs or a lot of different drugs and other uh, therapies uh, to bring a patient successfully through COVID-19. I'm, I'm like you, I'm two, year, I'm two years into this. And I have come to conclusion that, that the, the errors are almost always errors of omission. They're not errors of commission when it comes to medical therapy. I absolutely agree with you. you. know These patients that sit in hospital getting supportive care, I think is an absolute outrage. This is a serious disease and you've got to treat them aggressively. And the earlier you do this, the better. We'll let that be the last word. Let, let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.